1: You're listening to the history of Haldeman, Boulder, Colorado. I'm George Thomas. Lon is taking part in the Route 66 Pack Tour right now, checking in from Gallup, New Mexico. Correct, Lon?
2: Yes, yeah. And it's uh, ironically is uh, the route that we've been traveling. You know, we started in the West Coast, so you know, we, we came across uh, Arizona and, and the New Mexico and stuff. And this is the same. Route that I, I traveled on the double transcontinental from New York to Santa Monica and back. So um, I've been actually, uh, you know, going through these places and it's bringing back a lot of memories, flashbacks of, of you know, crossing the, the country there that was 35 years ago. So yeah, it's, uh, it's nice to be back here again.
1: Well, when we left off at our last interview, you were just getting ready to start. And can you go into, again, a little bit more of the logistics? I mean, how did you put the route together?
2: Well, uh, a a couple things. You know, my dad did a lot of the route and the research, and, you know, there really wasn't too many people to ask. You know, we, we had put some things together based on the notes that we knew from where John Marino had gone, and... Uh, when he set his transcontinental records in 1978, 79 and 80 and Pete from Sears and his friends had set a tandem record in 1979. <clears throat> so basically, you know, we, we knew the towns, we knew the cities, <clears throat> but that's about as detailed as it was. So in the next step was getting out the triple A, you know, auto map and taking a magic marker highlighter and, and saying, oh, shoot, this is Interstate 40 here and here, and this is Route 54, you know, going across Kansas and, and Missouri. And 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 literally, that's the route that we we followed. And you know, as we got into the east part, um, you know, my, my dad wrote a lot of letters. You know, this is all pre-internet stuff or any kind of good map systems. And so he wrote letters to probably... 20 bicycle clubs and, um, you know, cycling Federation officials because at that time it was the United States Cycling Federation that was certified to ride. So we talked to all these officials and, you know, and through a network of people, you know, they'd write back and, you know, some bike club might know a hundred miles of, of their route near Dayton, Ohio or something. So my dad compiled all of this over about a year's time Through, you know, 1980, and then into the spring of or January of 1981, and that's when we basically made the decision instead of just going for a west to east transcontinental record to try to break John Marino's 12-day, three-hour record. You know, after all this years worth of trying to compile the routing, we said, "Oh, let's try to." to the, the break the double transcontinental from New York to Monica, um, and then turn around and go back. So, you know, that really was one of the motivating factors of of trying to do the, the round trip, is because it had been so much work um, to put the one way together, even though at the time it was just like basically tracing stuff out on maps. So it was really basic. I mean, by today's standards... You know, the RAM route book, which is, you know, 120 pages long probably with GPS coordinates. I mean, our route sheet, you know, my dad hand wrote this out and it was three pages long, you know. And we went all across the United States on, on three handwritten pages based on just getting from city to city on some road. Now, that left out all the detail of how many turns there were to get through Indianapolis or some town along the way. So, you know, we were basically on our toes the whole way as you came into a city. You know, you're like, oh, you follow Route 54, and it doesn't tell you that it went through, um, you know, different places in, in around Wichita or something that you might actually make some turns here and there. So, you know, that's, that's how we followed the route. Do you, you still know, have basically. those route sheets? Yeah, and in, in fact, I... I thought I had made some photocopies and maybe even sent you some of that a few years ago, but yeah, we actually have that. I have that in a scrapbook and it's, it's kind of fun to look at it, you know, like it's the original Ram route book. And uh, we had to basically send that in to the cycling Federation to get our route pre-approved and, you know, to let people know what, what we were doing and where we were going and, and all of that. And, you know, this is, the days before even computers and, in in writing up something on a good typewriter. Um, so my dad basically had, you know, he has really good handwriting, but still it was these handwritten, uh, route cards basically of, of how we were going across the country. And sometimes it was, uh, 200, 300 miles between any points of reference, you know, from, you know, from Wichita, Kansas to Tucumcari, New Mexico is, you know, upwards of uh, 500 miles, and it just said, well, you go through Delhart, Texas, and Oklahoma, and stuff, and that's not really the only point of reference or where it was along the way.
1: What was the reaction from the USCF and the bike clubs that you contacted?
2: Um, it was mixed. Some of them were extremely excited, you know, because they had been involved in John Marino's record attempts, over the previous years. And so they were like, Oh yeah, this is really great. We got to come out and meet you. And, and then some of them, there was no response. And so that just, you know, drove my dad nuts because, you know, when you write a letter, you know, you're supposed to get a response in three weeks. And so he was, you know, kind of offended that not everybody responded to his, his letters. And I said, no, you just have to be a little more persistent, you know, give them the second chance, you know, and, um, of course, you don't have phone numbers for these people. It's not like you you can look up on the internet even who a bike club's president would be, or you know make a phone call so so that was that was a mixed review i guess is is the way it was. Some places were extremely um excited and when the ride was going on um well Susan Notarangelo, who was my girlfriend at the time, she was actually doing press and promotion is i guess her title so she had you know a binder of phone numbers and contacts and so she was always working a, you know 500 miles in advance calling people and then in turn those people of the bike club would say oh yeah we know so and so at the at the newspaper they want to come out and do a do an interview or you know, maybe a radio station uh, a bigger town like Wichita, or somebody you know has a, a a television station that was going to come out and and do something. So it was kind of the grassroots level on the the simplest terms, really, that um, that this whole thing was was being organized, and uh, and with the help of a lot of people along the way, you know, to pull it all together.
1: Now this is your longest ride to date. I mean, you had not gone across the country. You had done what a 400 mile record attempt, and now you're taking on 6,000 miles.
2: Yeah, well, I'd also done, you know, some three day, 900 mile, multi day events, uh, you know, riding 300 miles down to the Litchfield double Century or triple century, doing a triple century the next day, and then riding back 300 miles the next day. Um, also, the bicycle across Missouri, which was a non stop 540 mile event from St. Louis to Kansas City and back. Um, so basically I didn't know that much about long distance riding multi-day. And in hindsight, that's probably a good thing because, you know, we just, we were so naive about, about everything. And I was from the Midwest, you know, I had gone on vacation in Colorado. I kind of knew what a mountain looked like. I had never been to Pennsylvania or West Virginia, I had no idea that there were hills there. Uh, And I really hadn't gone beyond, uh, you know, New Mexico into Arizona. I had no idea what was, you know, that way. And I had never been in the desert. So in some ways, you know, we were just going off and doing this thing with, even though, you know, we were pretty meticulous, you know, trying to route this, but there was, we didn't know, we didn't know much at all. And, you know, I look back on it and I think, gee, what would have ever made us think that we could have pulled this off based on our experience at the time? Um, I mean, logistically, we didn't really know too much. I mean, physically I was, you know, in, in pretty good shape. I mean, I had done quite a few nine hour double century type rides and I had fair speed and day to day, stuff, but it was not anywhere near the type of uh day-to-day endurance that you really need to be doing this kind of thing. And so from that standpoint i I, I it was really kind of a crazy thing to be attempting. Um because I didn't really, you know, have that, you know, I was twenty let's see, I was twenty three years old at the time and which is still pretty young to be, you know, doing long distance rides. And uh so maybe had I been a little older, you know, the durability and endurance and stuff, you know, comes a little naturally when you're in your 30s and 40s. But, um, but you know, I was just enthusiastic, and I, I think that's probably the main thing reason why we did it, just because I wanted to do it.
1: So how many vehicles, what kind, there were no minivans at the time, and uh, how many crew? And how the heck did your crew get enough sleep?
2: Well, a uh, 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 A couple things that, that, that people need to remember based, you know, comparing this to the Race Across America, we thought people needed to sleep six hours a night. And so we basically rode during daylight hours, occasionally into sundown, and then we would bed down for the night and sleep till sunrise. So everybody i mean the crew everybody you know we went to campgrounds you know we just didn't pull off on the side of the road at a at a wide spot and do it you know you know ram commando style and 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 sleep for two hours and get back on the bike i mean we were sometimes dry you know they'd load me up at the intersection of where the campground was and we'd drive 10 miles down the road to a campground and then we'd set up the motorhome and and sleep the night, and then the next morning they drive me ten miles back on the route, and then they get on the bike and start riding. And, and terribly inefficient. I mean, anybody that's contemplated race across America would never do that today. But we thought that's the way you had to do it. You know, you needed your eight hours of sleep a night, and six hours was living on the edge. So, with that in mind, the crew did get some good chance to sleep for five hours at a night. Um, and so we had a motor home, which my, um, tell you, just my, my mom and dad were in that and my mom was cooking and, and she was, you know, cooking full meals with, with mashed potatoes and green beans and boiling stuff on the stove and, you know, all of that, which, you know, you could, motor home has got to be stationary to do that. You can't do that driving down the road. Um, and then we had, uh, my brother and, um, uh, My girlfriend, Susan Notarangelo at the time, they were in a support car and then we had, I had a mini, uh, well, it was a Dodge Omni, a little, looks like a VW Rabbit, a little bitty car. That was my, my car I bought, you know, all my savings for uh, $6,000. So uh, that was my car, support car. Um, which we had outfitted with flashing lights on the roof and amber flashers, revolver flashers, and and all the signage and stuff. And then we had a a, a shop, a van from the bike shop, and then we had two mechanic friends, Dean Ben and John Royer, with with me. And the crew did rotate around. You know, they they weren't just in one vehicle. So sometimes my mom was in the support car, and my brother, and you know, I think my brother. And Dean Dettman, I think, drove the support car, probably ninety percent of the time. And but, but they all all revolved around, and that was and that was fine. Um, and so you know that part can't be under underrated. I mean, even though we did have time to sleep, to be able to pull this off was with the crew. I was really really fortunate. First of all, I was fortunate that them. You know, my mom and dad that had put in a year's worth of work getting this ready, and then friends from the bike shop that took time off work, and you know, my brother, you know, was uh, out of just out of high school at the time, and then Susan uh, had left her job as as a nurse, and she wanted to do this as a as a big adventure. So, uh, you know, to have all those people come together, pretty much with with no guarantees that this was even going to work. Uh, you know, we were really lucky that, that we had that mix of people and personalities to pull this off.
1: Now, you had to do the same start and finish location as John Marino had for this to break his record, correct?
2: Correct. And that's the fine print that if anybody's going to try to break these records, that they really need to consider because uh, with the Cycling Federation, um, that was... The, the thing is it was city hall to city hall. It wasn't peer to peer and it wasn't some place in the suburbs and it wasn't um you know off at some easy to get to place like Savannah, Georgia or something.
1: So wait City so we Hall in New York City.
2: Yeah, like downtown and then we had to get out of well, we had to start there and then we had to get out of town and which we we had some control over that our start time because we started at three in the morning and and just about that start you know we we knew i, I think i started like on a saturday night or
1: now, something. how how did you know, how did you start was who all was there or was there was it just you
2: there was there was no there was a cycling federation guy um, and I, I should know his name. Um, but he was really gracious to come out there at like two in the morning and do the countdown with us. We had been staying in Sat- Staten Island for two days, three days ahead of time at Susan's, um, aunt's house. And then we came over in the morning, you know, like we left there at midnight or something. So then we come over and there's no parking and whatever. But anyway, we get there at, you know, 2.30 in the morning, basically, you know, we're the only ones there. And there was uh, this cycling federation guy who signed the paperwork. And, you know, I don't even think we have any great pictures. I mean, it was more like a show and go. And because there was like no parking and, you know, he said, okay, we're here. And they signed off on the paperwork and I started. And in fact, the motor home, might've been waiting on the New Jersey side. I don't even think we tried to bring the motor home downtown, but we had the little car with me and I start off riding and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally naive about this whole thing. And I'm, I'm like, they said, Oh, you got to ride through Harlem. And the only thing I knew about Harlem is it was like a song, like there's a rose in Spanish Harlem. And I'm like humming me a song, you know? And, and I have this, uh camping uh flashlight you know the old kind where you put like six d cell batteries in this camping flashlight and you screw on the lens and we took it and duct taped it to my stem and that was my light so i had like you know a six watt light bulb okay and there was no other good bike lights which is you know anyway, that's riding nowadays is you know it used to these you know thousands of candle power lights, you know, but we had nothing. And, and the only good light ever made was like this wonder light, which is more like you wonder why it ever worked. But so I have this camping headlight taped to my panda bars with duct tape and we start off and I'm riding down here. We have no police escort, nothing. So I'm going traffic light to traffic light. And so I hit a manhole cover, the, Front wheel bounces, the lens pops off the flashlight, falls on the ground, I look between my legs, the batteries are scattered all over the road, and two seconds later, the support car crunches over the lens and the batteries, and now I have no light. So, which I didn't really need the light because I had the support car with me. So anyway, legally, now I don't have a, a headlight. So anyway, we proceed on. We ride down. To the bridge, which there again, I, I can look this up, but it was either the Verizontals or the Gothel's Bridge. I'm not exactly sure which one it was. But the support car says, you got to get on the sidewalk and walk across the bridge. So they like give me my gym shoes. I sit on the uh, barricade or on the guardrail. I change my shoes and they said, we'll meet you on the other side. So dude, they drive on the other side. So this bridge is it's huge. It's like, to me, it's like a mile across. And so I start walking on the sidewalk, wheeling my bike. And the reason I couldn't ride on the road is because there's huge expansion joints that are, you know, the gaps are four inches wide. And I guess when they do the five girls bike tour, they must put plywood and carpeting or something over it. But it was basically it's unrideable. So I am walking on the sidewalk, middle of the night. Now it's maybe three thirty in the morning. And and I'm out there all by myself, and I'm you know, looking at the skyline of New York City, and it was actually a very pretty night, and I'm looking at the boats and all this stuff, and I get over to the other side. The car had found some place to park, and switch my shoes back, and I start riding again with the car behind me, and now I'm, I'm in New Jersey, and as far as I know, I think we're, we might be on the interstate. At that time, you could ride a bike on it, but Nowadays, of course, it would be totally illegal. But anyway, so we started riding, and I'm riding my time trial bike from Illinois, which I thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to you know, use my time trial bike because that's faster. Well, I had the 52-tooth chain ring and a 1321 freewheel, a six-speed freewheel at the time. So I'm you know riding this big gear bike. And all of a sudden I start getting into the hills in New Jersey and I'm in the 5221 and just stalling out. And I go, this isn't going to work. So we stop, get the different bike off. And I got on my, my Trek. Uh, at that time it was made out of Columbus tubing. It was Trek's top of the line bike. And that had a 42 inner ring. And again, with a, a, like a straight block type freewheel on it. And so I start riding that.
0: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: Yeah, and I'm I'm still suffering on the hills. When then it starts to rain, and now it's about sunrise, and we head across New Jersey, eventually into Pennsylvania. And. The whole thing, you know, I look. I, I think back on it. I mean, a lot of this is clear as you know, yesterday in in my mind because it was pretty. You know, it's pretty dramatic for me at the time, and probably one of the more memorable um, bike rides of my my life because everything was so new. You know, it was just uh, you know, and even the crew. When you know, we get this these these old timers together, and they talk about race across America, adventures, and stuff. A lot of times they keep saying when they visualize something of a transcontinental, it goes back to the 1981 double transcontinental. Just because, first of all, it's your first time and everything's new, and you're just wide-eyed about the whole thing, and and that's that's the way it was. It was just a, a great experience for us, you know, and that we did everything right. But it was just a uh, really we were having fun, you know. It wasn't it wasn't blood and guts at all. And so, you know, that's why it made it really enjoyable.
1: So did you have any time goals plotted out where you wanted to be at such and such an area by such and such a time?
2: Yeah, actually we did. We thought that if we did the double double transcontinental record was 36 days set by Victor Vincenti um, about 10 years earlier. And so that was... A goal, okay. But I had a goal of 28 days round trip. Marino's record was 12 days, three hours. So that gave us something like a 15-day goal going west and then to come back in less than 12 days. You know, so anyway, 16 and 12, I'd put it at 28. So I knew that I needed to still knock off close to 200 miles a day on the way west. So that kind of was our blocks of of time, which, you know, by RAM standards, you know, doesn't really seem like that much. But the thing is, what I found out is like, that was pretty hard. I mean, by the third day, you know, going to West Virginia and, you know, trying to still knock off 200 miles a day and then it, it was raining and, and stuff. And, and, you know, I was getting pretty cooked. And, you know, even though I, you know, supposedly in in pretty good cycling shape, if I I still didn't have that, that endurance base. you know, the day after day after day. So, you know, five days into it, you know, we're, you know, heading into Illinois and, and the wind is blowing from the West. And so every morning we'd get up and it was like, you'd watch the flags and it's like, Oh, it's, you know, it's 10 miles an hour at 9.00 AM. And it turns into 20 miles an hour by noon. And, and you're riding into the wind and that's kind of how it went. And so to get our 200 miles in every day was, was our primary goal. And if I felt good, I, I, you know, I think I knocked off some, some days up in the, in the 240, 240 miles at times. But as I got into like Western Kansas down to Oklahoma into Dalhart, Texas, the wind really was blowing. And I was on this one section I, I remember is uh, I only did 180 miles, and I rode a lot at night. So I probably put in a an 18-hour day at 10 miles an hour. Uh, and my friend John Royer, who was uh, a bicycle mechanic, but he was actually a Category 1 racer, and at the time, it was allowed that crew members could come out and say hi to you. But John would get out and was riding his blue jeans alongside me, and I was so tired. I mean, you know, I was—he could easily keep up with me. But his baseball hat—he nobody was wearing helmets. I had a skid lid, but he, John did have a helmet, and his baseball hat kept blowing off and blowing back behind us. And and then I'd say, well, how long is it going to take John to go get his hat and catch me again? And, I mean, that's how strong the wind was blowing because his hat kept blowing off. And that's what I remember is, you know, it takes a lot of wind to blow your baseball hat off. So, especially when you're only going 10 miles an hour. So, the headwind had to be, you know, close to 30. But, uh, anyway, uh, that's the way it was. And and as I got into New Mexico, uh, I remember heading from Tucumcari, Santa Rosa, to Grants, and then the Continental Divide. And for some reason, I thought the Continental Divide to the Pacific Ocean was downhill, and I had no idea that Arizona was even there with mountains. So top of every rise, I'm thinking I'm going to see the beach. I thought the Pacific Ocean was just like over the next hill. So that went on across all of Arizona, and eventually after Flagstaff, uh, we dropped down into the desert, and then I, you know, it was the first time in the desert, and that was a, a new experience in itself. You know, I'd never ridden in 110, 115-degree uh, heat. So, you know, that was, that was I was really cooked. I mean, and what, uh, what time of
1: year was this?
2: This would, it would have been in late June. Would have been in late June because I knew that I, when I finally got to Santa Monica, um, I got in there just about sundown. We were off the bike for about four hours. We went to the hotel. My mom was really upset that we spent $250 on a Wilshire boulevard hotel, and we only got to stay there four hours. And then we had to pack up, get back. I don't know why we just didn't sleep in the motorhome, actually, but anyway, we had to pack up and then hightail it back out of there before the traffic got bad. And cause we had come into Santa Monica from, uh, like Palm Springs at last 150 miles. And it was, it was like Los Angeles stop and go traffic. I, I'm not sure what day of the week it was probably a prior Friday night, but it was, you know, every half mile wait for a red light, every half mile wait for a red light. It took me all day to go 150 miles. So the next morning, we knew we had to get out of there, like, like, fast. So I'm up again at 2 o'clock. We're probably on the bikes by 3, and catching all those traffic lights flashing yellow, and I basically time-trialed it out of there. Of course, now the, the clock restarts to try to break Marino's record. So it was 12 days, 18 hours to get to uh, Santa Monica City Hall. So I hadn't broken Marino's one-way record, but I had done 12 days, 18 hours, which was still way faster than my 15-day hypothetical pace. And what's what's going
1: through your mind right uh, now? Because you actually did have an East-West record.
2: Yeah, right. I mean, that was the East-West record, and 12 days, 18 hours, which ironically still stands. And... I don't, you know, it'd be kind of neat if somebody went out to try to break it. But again, using the fine point of going from New York city hall to Santa Monica city hall. Um, But anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, but there was no celebration. I mean, we got to the, we got to the end in Santa Monica. We didn't celebrate at all. It was like, get to the hotel, get a shower because we knew we had, we had to turn around and in a few hours and start back. So when you imagine finishing race across America and getting back on the bike in a few hours and, and heading back. And so, but for us, it was all part of the process. You know, it was, there was no celebration. There was nothing. We didn't, we didn't celebrate this that, Oh, we made it halfway. You know, we're doing really good. We still looked at it like we got a long way to go and we got to go faster on the way back. Cause now we you know we got to cut a day off this somehow. So the good thing was, is now we knew the route, you know, because we had basically followed the magic marker across the map all the way to the West coast. Now I have a, a pretty good photographic memory, I guess for, for memorizing routes and all of that. So on the return trip, I was able to basically ride it without a, a route sheet. I knew the route all the way back and a lot of times the the crew would, you know, be be asked, "Oh, which way do we go?" And I said, "Okay, we go up here, we turn right, and we make a left at the gas station, and so on." And because I had been looking at all these flags and and stuff blowing at me all the way to the to the coast on the way back, I'm I'm like comparing it. I said, "Well, I hope I get that same tailwind on the way back that I had a headwind on the way out." And so. On the return trip, for example, even though it had taken me a hundred and the the last day into Santa Monica was 150 miles or something in from, uh, Palm Springs. On the way back, I knocked off almost a 300 mile day going back out through Blythe, back out through court sites into Arizona. And, and up to that point, that was actually my longest day of the whole ride and. And everything was clicking. The crew knew what to do. I mean, I was on a schedule for eating, drinking. You know, we weren't eating pancakes in the motorhome anymore. And so we had learned a lot, just efficiency, how to do it better and, and, and easier and and things. But we were still sleeping a lot. We slept that. I got into Quartzsite on the other side there at sundown and got up at sunrise, then that was in the date, I believe, is July 3rd, because the next day was the 4th of July, and we came up through Flagstaff, and my dad was afraid we couldn't get a campsite on the 4th of July. So we actually stopped again early to go get a campsite. So we still weren't super efficient. And so we get a campsite and spend the night, get up the next morning at sunrise, and we ride you know, pretty much a lot through New Mexico. And then we stop again at sundown. So this is kind of the ironic thing, and we'll get ahead of the story here. But in the first three days of that double transcontinental return trip was about the same distance I rode nonstop the next year at the Great American Bike Race out towards Joseph City and beyond. So. Anyway, so the, this whole transcontinental, even though we were doing better than we had on the on the going to West part and the return trip, we were more efficient, but we really still weren't riding at night. You know, in the first three days, I think I, I still had, had like almost 20, 20 hours of sleep, which in a few years later, to get 20 hours of sleep on a whole transcontinental was considered a luxury. So... Anyway, on the return trip, things went better and better and better, more and more efficient, more and more riding even at night, and eventually cutting down on sleep, where I'd even ride till midnight and sleep till, you know, sunrise or something. You know, I still might have been getting uh, five hours a night, and then as we got into New York City, we're counting it down, and I was supposed to go through the Holland Tunnel. You know, Susan had been on the phone with the Port Authority, and they said, if you get here at 6 in the morning, you can get through the Holland Tunnel. We'll give you an escort. So we're counting it down in, you know, the last 100 miles. And John Schubert, who was an editor of Bicycle Magazine at the time, who is part of our our daily correspondence now, because now we had a lot of following through bike shops, and, of course, this is all pre-internet and stuff, but we had this phone-in hotline thing where people could call and get updates. So anyway, now it's building and building, and you know, nowadays you'd have 10,000 followers on Facebook or something, but we had like 100. We had like 100 media people that were following this ride and, and documenting it. Well, John Schubert comes out to ride with me thinking he's going to have an easy 15-mile-an-hour ride into New York City. Well, we get the word, I've got to get to the Holland Tunnel in over, well, it's... We had, like, two hours to go, like, 50 miles. So I'm, like, just jamming at a at a time trial pace. And John Schubert, he's just, like, hanging on my wheel, and he, he always remembers the story that he thought he was coming out for a leisurely interview on the bike, and he was basically trying not to get dropped. And we counted it down. Well, it turns out I didn't – I couldn't get there by 6. They changed it. They said, no, you've got to get there by 5. <laughs> So that's why all of them said, no, we're not going to get there at 5. Well, it turns out we get there like at 5.30, and they basically said, okay, you're allowed to go through the Holland Tunnel. So we come blasting through there. There again, I I was still time trial pace, come out the other side. I'm not sure how many more blocks it is to the to – the, uh, uh, City Hall from from the Holland tunnel, some New Yorker probably knows. But it seems like we came right up the other side within, I don't know, not very long, and all of a sudden we're at the at sunrise, we're at the City Hall. Of course, there's like nobody there. I mean there's you know, there there's there's no cheering crowds, there's nothing, but we we ended up taking some pictures, which I'll I'll send you for your website. But uh, and I think there was maybe a television station or something that come out, but now this was, this was still almost in the dark, you know, and I think it's still before six o'clock. So nobody wanted to get up that early and come out and, and film. But, uh, the thing is, yeah, we, we finished, we got done and again, no celebration. There was no champagne. There was really no hugs, no nothing because we knew we had to get out of there because now we got the police telling us we had to move. You got to get your vehicles out of here. You know, you're in front of City at all. So we basically loaded up, drove across the river to the uh, Staten Island. I, by now it's, I don't know how long it is. Night or two, it might be eight o'clock in the morning. I go to bed. Uh, and then I, cause I'm trash and get up at noon. We do another one of these teleconferences and John Marino calls in because he had been following this on the media thing, so John Marino calls in and goes, "Congratulations on setting the new transcontinental record, which was ten days, twenty-three hours, and they had broken his his record." And he was very gracious, and you know, and I had just woken up from a nap, and I'm I'm doing this interview on the phone, kind of half-dazed. But anyway, he's because we had this these interviews set up like at noon, and I failed to mention that every day for this whole twenty-four day transcontinental. We had to be at a phone booth at a certain time, and if I got there early, I had to wait at the phone booth until the time the interview started. So, you know, in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico, there weren't that many phone booths. So, I mean, sometimes I'd wait an hour, you know, waiting at a phone booth because I couldn't make it to the next phone booth in time. But anyway, so we do this interview, now it's, say, noon, and John Marina says, next year, there's this race called the Great American Bike Race with him and John, uh, John Howard and Michael Sherber. Now that I'm the Transcontinental record holder, would I like to participate? And I said, oh, sure. You know, and, you know, four hours earlier, the whole crew thought we'd never do this again, you know, and within like four hours, like, and I could just see everybody's eyes roll like, oh man, you know, now we got another year to plan for, but that's how things usually went. You know, we never had a, a lifelong plan of doing any of this stuff. Every event was like, we did it like it was our last. And that's probably a good thing because you're not holding anything back. It's like, now nah, we'll try it this time and do it again next year. But every year, every event was, I always did it like it was my last. And so anyway, I think that, that might even tie us in for a future show sometime about the Great American Bike Race. But that's really how it all came about. It was, again, a spur-of-the-moment decision for me to decide, you know, to ride my bike across the country again the next year.
1: Well, Great American Bike Race is coming up in our next episode. So you've done some very special crossings, special rides. Is the Double Transcon up there in your top three, top five?
2: Yeah, I, I have to say it was one of my it was one of my favorites um for a bunch of reasons. Just because the travel, you know, because I had never been across the country before, <laughs> so that was new and so that's always interesting. Um the competition, of course it's more competition among yours against yourself, but because we were able to still meet our time goals, so there was a sense of satisfaction uh with that. Uh so yeah, I, I, I had a, really, I had a good time and there were, there's more and more stories. I mean, if we wanted to get into of probably the most tired I've ever been, the most delirious I've ever been, um, happened on that double transcontinental. So it wasn't, it wasn't fun. All of it wasn't fun. I mean, there were times I, I was peeling myself out of, out of bed and basically, you know, there were times at the support car in New Mexico one night in particular, I I said I am going to sleep. Give me a blanket out of the back seat, and I laid down in the ditch on the side of the interstate. And I said I'm going to bed. And you know and the crew's like, no, you can't sleep here. You can't sleep here. You got to keep going, kind of thing. But um, there were times I was I was completely exhausted. I mean, and, and, and to the point of collapse. And that that happened several times during that ride, mainly on the westbound section, the eastbound. When I returned, I rode on the average probably 20% longer and faster every day. Mainly the wind was a whole lot better, but, you know, that also helped me, you know, go down the road and, you know, knock off that extra 50 miles every day. So, um, but it, yeah, the double transcontinental for me was was one of the, the most memorable events that I ever did, on, you know, for cross country.
1: Well, on! thank you very much for taking the time out to share your story with us. And uh wish you all the best on Route 66 pack tour as you continue on. Where's your destination? You're in Gallup now. Where are you heading?
2: We have about a 70-mile day tomorrow just over the Continental Divide going to uh, Grants. So we have basically a a late breakfast. We have a nice, you know, we do these classic diner breakfasts in the morning and and stuff so uh, tomorrow we're looking forward to an easier day today was today was a little over a hundred miles a lot of dirt road sand options that we did which which actually were a lot of fun but it took up a lot of time so uh, a lot of people barely got in here uh, in time for dinner tonight tomorrow should be a lot easier and uh, you know a good, a good recovery day for everybody so we're looking forward to that
1: you've been listening to the history of Haldeman On Over the Top Radio, Boulder, Colorado, I'm George Thomas. Thanks very much, Lon Haldeman.
2: All right. Thank you.